welcome to another edition of Trinity College Dublin Talks. With us today is Professor Brian Lucy, who is a professor of economics, a statistician, and somebody who's very interested in the markets. Uh, many people listening today will be familiar with Brian's uh, commentary on the financial crisis. He was there when the country imploded, and he's here now that the country is <laughs> back again and has written uh, a lot on that topic. Uh, before joining Trinity, Brian was uh, a statistician in the Department of Health and an economist at the Central Bank, and he studied in Canada and Scotland as well as the UK. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Afternoon. Brian, let's, let's start with your research interests because they're, they're, they're quite unusual in a way uh, for an economist. It seems to me, looking at the 140 plus papers mm. that, that you've, you've authored or co-authored, that you're very interested in investments and especially in alternative investments. You've written a lot about yeah. stock exchange, gold, cryptocurrencies. Yeah. What, what have you, um, you learned from all this research? I mean, how, how does it inform your own investment decisions, let's say? Do you invest? Uh, I generally actually don't really invest. Mm. I save. I try to save, like most people, and I don't take an active investment approach. I don't think any individual, sorry, no one in any one individual can do very well. But in general, individuals find it really difficult to beat the market. Now, the market sounds like some sort of omniscient, omnipotent being, and and it's not. It's simply the aggregation of a whole pile of people and increasingly algorithms making decisions about buying something, selling something, taking a position that gold will rise or oil will fall. It's really, really hard for an individual, you, me, Casey, anybody listening, to beat that market unless you have some specialist knowledge about a particular area and you are prepared to go with the old maxim. You can eat well or you can sleep well, but money is always at risk in the markets. So I tend to prefer to sleep well and I prefer to you know, save if I can and not try to play the markets, which Would may seem strange for somebody who's devoted their life to researching it. Well, it's very interesting. I, 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 I read a column by the, uh, personal, editor, the uh, personal finance editor of the FT the other day in, in his kind of farewell column. He said much the same thing, mm. but he doesn't actually invest. Himself. Yeah. But do you put money in tracker funds? I mean, do you, do you kind of spread it that yeah, way? Yeah, through, through, through pension yeah. funds, yes. Yeah. And basically what tracker funds, and there's all sorts of different versions of them, they try to replicate a broad swathe of the market. You might be interested in, let's say, uh, emerging markets. And you can find a fund which will invest in lots and lots of companies and, and other activities in emerging markets. And you then don't have to worry about finding information on a company in Zimbabwe or how a corporate bond in Sri Lanka is doing. Somebody that you're paying usually quite a hefty sum as a percentage of the total amount you put in, uh, they're doing it. And, and they should have gone to college and done professional exams to be able to make a more informed decision than you should. Tell me, you have this, you have this particular interest in gold. It's, I, yeah. I've never understood gold bugs. I've never understood mm. why somebody would think that the price of gold tells you anything, bearing in mind that it's dictated by things like how many people get married in India and how much mm. gold jewellery is bought that year. To why, some extent, why, to some extent, yeah, to some is extent. It, is it, it's uh, not really um, a safe haven or, or is it a hedge? Why do, why do people invest in gold? Why should they invest in gold, do you think? Okay, well, there's a f few things. First of all, gold is still quite a significant industrial metal. People forget this. It actually has a lot of industrial uses. If everybody tomorrow morning decided to stop investing in gold, it would still have a price and it would still be traded like steel or aluminium or copper or cobalt because it's used. And it's also used very extensively, as you mentioned, in jewellery. And still even 
uh, several tens of tons a year of gold end up in people's teeth around the world. So leaving aside the financial side, it still has a, a lot of uses. And you're right. Uh, it is special, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's different. It's, yeah. it's unusual. Um, as you said, you mentioned the word gold bugs. There are people who get very passionately attached to the idea that gold is the one true you know, ring uh, of power almost, and they should, we should all go into it. If you think gold is crazy, folks, uh, tune in next week when we talk about silver, which makes the gold bugs look completely rational. Gold has a psychological hold on people for a couple of reasons. One, it's shiny. It's known to us all. We like it. We, we think it has value because other people think it has value. Secondly, it does have some you mentioned the word hedge and safe haven. It does have some hedging properties in that, in general, if things are going to pot, uh, gold prices tend to rise. Now, there, there, there's a limit to this. There's a limit. The limit is the following. Why does gold rise? It rises because if you're trying to smuggle yourself and your family across the border, giving somebody a few gold coins might work. Gold is also bloody heavy. It's a heavy metal. You can't carry more than a few kilos of it around without somebody noticing. And, you know, a few kilos of gold, you know, is going to run out quickly if you're in the zombie apocalypse or if you're trying to flee across, you know, from, from, from some terrorist campaign. So there's a limit to it. That's the physical gold. The financial gold, however, the gold that's traded in the forms of futures and options, actually that's what drives the price rather than the Indian monsoon or uh, people fleeing from, from, you know, from terrible situations. And that tends to be driven by the idea that gold in the medium term tends to be a good hedge against inflation. In other words, if inflation is high, the price of gold will rise at or at above the same level and you will end up perhaps no worse off than you were. That finding is open to serious dispute. Some of the research I've done with some doctoral students and colleagues in China and people in Australia show that that may have held in the 1970s and 80s when inflation was really high. But when you're in low inflation regimes like we are now, that relationship isn't really there. So we're thrown back then on gold being a function of a limited amount of industrial and adornment use, jewellery, etc. A certain amount of uh, it's a hedge because people think it's a hedge and therefore they act as if it's a hedge. And if you fake it until you make it, then you've made it. If everybody thinks that gold will rise when the stock market falls, and they act on that basis, and the algorithms are programmed to act on that basis, then, you know, mirably dicti, this will happen. So gold is funny. There's no doubt about gold, it. It's interesting. Gold, it's gold fascinating. Is, it is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, but gold was our, our first currency, really, as, as kind of uh, humans. Then we had paper yeah. currency, and yep. now it seems that the paper currencies are slowly going. It looks like Sweden will abolish it, and other countries will follow. And now we have a mm. third type of currency, digital currency, cryptocurrencies, which, which you're also interested in. Do you think um, cryptocurrencies are the future, or are no. they a tulip-like fad, or something else entirely? I think a lot of blockchain and cryptocurrencies are built in primary on blockchain. Blockchain is a solution looking for a problem. Blockchain is a ledger. What does um, that mean? That sounds very clever, but, but, but well, a solution a, looking for if a problem. We, it, 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 blockchains are distributed ledgers, which basically means that uh, anybody can write to and, and update the ledger. But you could have that literally by having a big hall and people being able to come in and do it. You know, we've had ledgers and ledger-based accounting systems basically since people invented writing. Bitcoins and Ethereums and 
all of the ICOs, the initial coin offerings, these are all tremendously fascinating experiments in creating both new kinds of assets and new ways of transmitting assets. The problem is this, you cannot right now go out, go down to Costa Coffee and buy a cup of coffee and a donut with Bitcoin. It, it can't be done. Money has a certain set of attributes. You can use it to buy stuff. You can use it to store value. You can, something that's often forgotten, use it to pay the government taxes. Wander into revenue and say, hi, I've got a couple of Ethereums here, and they'll go, really? That's, that's nice, but we'd prefer a bank transfer. It is undoubtedly the case that there are places where blockchain technology can be useful in what's called smart contracts, in issues around logistics, and going back to gold, a big concern about gold is what's called conflict gold, where you might have gold which is either mined by children in horrible situations or has been looted. And if you can find a way to uh, embed some sort of blockchain-related transactions ledger in the supply chain of these activities, then you might be able to have better tracking. So cryptocurrencies are really small in the global environment. They're really bubbly. They have lots and lots of bubbles. They show incredible volatility. They're also very frothy in that you get lots and lots of them popping up and then disappearing. They have some really unusual um, characteristics and they're not particularly good as money. In other words, the more, the more Bitcoins, let's say, and I'm using Bitcoin as it's the one most people probably know, the more of these get mined out, the more of these get created, the slower it is to transact activity. If I go in right now, I tap my card, boom, it's done. If I go and do that with Bitcoin, it's much, much slower. Now, this is leaving aside the fact the bank might hold on to the money that goes out of my account for two days before it pays the merchant. In principle, it's pretty instantaneous. With distributed ledgers and blockchains, their very success in getting more and more can be their undoing in that it can be slower and slower to transact. Now, again, there are solutions coming up that are mitigating that, and maybe these will be overcome. But right now, this is not the future of money. It might be a future for at money, but it's not the future of money. What is the future? I'd say of money? one. I'd, I'd say one thing about did, about abolishing uh, abolishing cash. If you think about what happens if you abolish cash, then you give a panopticon of the economy to the government, and there's no doubt that China, America, the US, uh, the, the UK would love to get rid of a, of, of cash because then they will know exactly what everybody has spent everywhere at any given time. And that gives them enormous power. Enormous power to find out what people are doing, where they're doing it, how they're doing it, when, etc. And in an era of digital privacy concerns, I'm not sure people have thought this through. Um, I really am sure people have thought this through. The idea of getting rid of these ugly, bulky paper notes, well, you know, the ugly, bulky paper notes have the advantage that they're pretty much untraceable. That's not to say that, you know, you want to encourage uh, people to be, you know, kind of living in the shadows. But the reality is, does the government really need to know that we bought our coffee and a donut and cost a coffee? No, they don't. 
they, they would like to know if we're you know laundering money for Al Qaeda or buying know, drugs, buying drugs. Million things, yeah. But you know that's uh, that that's another day's work. There are other ways to track that. But do you think? I mean, it's a big concern in Germany, for instance. People are writing a lot of books, a lot of you know senior people, former finance ministers, mm. and so on. And and I suppose what they're worried about is arbitrary taxes. Uh, yep. you know, everybody's account could be drained tomorrow yep. once the government has control. Absolutely. But just because we don't want something to happen doesn't mean it, it won't happen or that the trend is, isn't moving that way. Do you think that is the way things are moving? Or do you think, uh, as you say, the public might wake up to these dangers? And I, I think that most of the public will be very happy to, if their life is made more convenient and they won't be concerned. Let's turn to the financial crisis that... Uh, hmm. uh, and by the way, folks, there's an excellent new book recently called Recalling the Celtic Tiger, edited by myself and two other colleagues, available in all good bookstores for a mere 21 euro. Indeed, and it was very, very well reviewed by, by most of the national papers. It was, it was. It was good fun to write. And, and it's interesting that you use the word fun because <laughs> horrific though it sounds, and I should declare an interest here, I was a financial journalist at the time, that the crisis was fun in some ways because it, 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 it posed a lot of kind of interesting questions mm. about who we are and how we should act and, and first all the questions about how society should be arranged. And Brian, you were, you were a, a, a prominent commentator at the time, uh, reflecting back on the crisis, mm. reflecting back on what this country went through and the, the hundreds of thousands who were forced to leave the country and the suffering and misery. Do you think, um, but also there was hysteria, of course, I mean, mm. there were moments where we thought the country was just going to disappear and, and it, it didn't, it yep. proved to be more robust. I mean, what do you think the lessons of the crisis are and do you think we've learnt those lessons? I think the crisis was one of those Chinese proverbs that we lived in interesting times. And as you say, there were some times when it felt like it was an existential crisis. Um, I think the lessons of the, the crisis are that, as a nation, we are not terribly good at long-term planning. This won't surprise anybody who wanders around and looks at things. I, I should say here, we give out a lot about the country, but that's part of the Irish psyche. The reality is that every indicator of you know, global economic well-being, health, wealth, happiness, we actually aren't too bad. No, that's not to say there aren't there are problems, but the average Irish person is in a pretty sweet spot compared to the average person globally. Now, the lesson, as I say, is that we're not very good at long-term planning. The crisis, and of course this is always easier in retrospect, and, and I think, you know, Financial journalists and academic, academic economists were, to some extent, justifiably chastised for not either having seen it or having called out as loudly from the rooftops as perhaps we might have done so. The crisis was a long term in coming, and it was a classic example of you know how do you go bankrupt slowly at first and then all at once. Um, it unravelled really quickly, but the unravelling was partly due to external factors, but also partly due to the fact that we weren't very good at long-term planning. We could have, I think, and I, I'll stick to this to my dying day, I think we could, had we had better capacity in all its senses, in advising government, in advising the banks, we could have cauterized some of the problems earlier. And we may not necessarily have had to throw everything on the table like a gambler, you know, taking their last shot in a Mississippi River boat, uh, with the result that we lost it all. In other words, we could probably have, had we had 
more capacity in the system, and we do have that capacity now, much greater analytical capacity in the economic, financial, regulatory, uh, stress testing uh, environment has been put in place uh, as a consequence. We might have been able to say, look, there's, here's rational reasons why, in particular, Anglo and Irish nation might can, to some extent, be cut from the herd and save the rest. As it was, everything went on the table, everything was treated the same as it was, and we ended up with a problem. One of the myths, what we have learned, I think, is that we're not very good at educating the population about the economy. You talk to people and they are convinced that every single cent of the increase in national debt and the consequent austerity was as a result of pouring money into Anglo. Mm. When in fact, about a third of the increase in national debt was down to the direct bailout. And some of that even will still be recouped. The rest of it was down to the fact that we ran budget deficits because we weren't very good at long-term planning. And the government had been getting hugely reliant on bubble taxes. Not just stamp duty, but also the inflated economy that the credit boom had led to, which meant that the tax take was above where it should be. And when we look now at, let's say, the very healthy corporation tax take, I think we're still in danger of, you know, laissez le bon temps brûlé and, 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 you know, McCreevyism of having it and spending it. But at least the system is acknowledging the fact that this can't go on, that this bulge in corporate tax is likely to be a transient thing. Whether that's a five-year or a ten-year horizon, the system is planning for the day when that won't be there. And that's a huge lesson that has been learned. Now, as to whether or not the resilience is there that if tomorrow morning something bad happened and we found ourselves uh, having a corporation tax uh, meltdown, would we be able to deal with it? Maybe not. But we'd be able to deal with it better than we would have been 10 years ago. So you're, you're broadly optimistic about uh, the, key, the key lessons that have been learned from, from the crisis. But I think lessons have been learned. Yeah. And I think we're facing in now as we record this, the election has just been called. And I think it's going to be really interesting, even abstracting from the fact that you know, a politician's first job is to keep their jobs to get elected and they'll promise anything to anybody at any time in the hope of getting a vote. And, and that's not being cynical. I mean, that's just the reality of, of what politics is. But I think it'll be interesting to see how the media, how society interrogates the party platforms to say, well, what are the trade-offs that you are actually proposing? If we see that debate, if we see people being rigorously interrogated as to what would you do and what would you not do, and not allowing parties to give glib, superficial answers, then that will suggest that we have, as a polity, a society, an economy, a, a, a governance, and a government, uh, learnt that we have to question ourselves. Because, remember, the Fianna Fáil Green government wasn't imposed upon us by some alien overlord. We voted them into power. Given the party platforms that had been on, op on offer, essentially the same crisis and probably the same result would have come about had we had a Fine Gael Green or a Fine Gael Labour government. So, you know, the Irish political system is very good at reflecting what people want. And what it generally wants is it wants fixers and it wants short-term solutions and it doesn't particularly want to think about the long term. On that happy note, let's let's let's. Turn oh, I thought to, that was happy to, to you. Uh, <laughs> this is why economics is sometimes called a dismal science. Indeed, um, and that's really where I'd like to kind of finish off. I mean, I'm, I'm curious 
What attracted you to economics? <coughs> what, 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 uh, when did the young Brian Lucy kind mm. of realize that um, he wanted to devote himself to the dismal science? So, to some extent, this goes back to politics uh, because we had. Uh, I grew up in Southwest Kerry in a, in a tourist environment, and one of the people who used that to come on holidays. Like Kalani, is it? Or no, no, no wa 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 Waterville, County Kerry. Waterville, yep. um, and, and there was a few things happening around the time I was growing up. One was that. When I was nine or ten, we had the first um, we, 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 we had the first oil crisis, and this was coming as the troubles in the north began to get really into the more vicious phase. Waterville, in particular, had been somewhat anomalous in that it had relied very heavily on uh, what you might call an Anglo tourist base. It was a fishing, hunting, shooting, uh, gentrified type of holiday maker that typically came there. And with the combination of the oil crisis and the problems in the north, that began to unravel. So you could see your local economy beginning to get hit. And you begin, you know, as when you hear people talking about the dinner table, even as a 10-year-old, you begin to think about these issues. Like, what's going on in the world? What's happening? Why, you know, what, what does this mean? Um, and that, I think, sparked an interest in, you know, kind of political and economic stuff that, that has stayed with me. But then also, a couple of years, um, Richie Ryan, the finance minister, came on holidays. And he used to come into the shop, and um, he was a very nice gentleman. He would, he would talk to anybody. And, um, you know, he, he would give... He, he, he talked to me, and he would talk to any of the kids, and he would, you know, kind of jovially enough... You know, talk about economics and, and, and finance. And it was only afterwards you realised... That's great. So as a 14-year-old, you were... Yeah, you were it, it was... Oh, with Richie Ryan as... Yeah, I mean, you know, the man's yeah, buying, yeah, he's yeah. buying his paper and, you know, mm. looking at the books and things. Mm. But, um, little, you know, kind of novels to buy on holidays. So, you know, you, you, you have these little gems that kind of sometimes sink in. And, 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 and as an educator, I think we often worry about whether the students' evaluations at the end of the semester are good or bad, when the reality is a few words here and there might have a huge effect five or ten years down the line on, on, on the students. I mean, as parents, anybody who's a parent will realise, you know, you sometimes say things and you go like, oh my God, you know, and that can be thrown back at you for good or ill five or ten years down the line. So a combination of those issues and then a colleague, uh, sorry, not colleague, uh, a friend of my brother, uh, who subsequently ended up working for Coca-Cola, uh, in their global operations and did very well. Uh, he went to Trinity. My brother was five, six years older. He went to Trinity and he would be, uh, he would be coming back on holidays and he said, oh yeah, it's great, I'm doing best, business, economic and social studies. And it's really interesting and you've got lots of stuff to do and you know, uh, good crack and good fun. So that became, that kind of crystallised for me that I wanted to do that, um, or at least try to do that. Uh, it was that or law and uh, I'm, I, I think I would have been the world's worst lawyer. So when I got into Trinity, I, had, uh, I, I was really, really lucky in that uh, Loudon Ryan, uh, a very erudite, at that stage, uh, quite elderly, but, but still hale and hearty gentleman, who was governor of the Bank of Ireland, uh, but who also had written, uh, as it turns out, some of the seminal texts on, on economics, globally accepted seminal texts on economics in the 60s, uh, was lecturing uh, the first year economics course. And he was very good at making economics real. Uh, in second year, 
this was cemented for me as this is something I'm interested in uh, by John O'Hagan. That's fantastic for you, isn't it? For the chairman of the National Bank. Oh, it was wonderful. First years. Yeah, wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Well, I mean, this is something that's, you know, we, we really, in a sense, have lost with the over-specialization at times in, 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 in general in, in, um, in universities. It's like having, you know, the chief chemist of, of you know, Bayer or somebody coming in, taking chemistry labs, uh, in second year, and this is 1982, 1983, so the economy again is falling into a dark black hole. Uh, John O'Hagan, uh, who had written a series and, and has continued to even in his retirement to write the series of The Economy of Ireland, a definitive survey of all the aspects of how you view a society through the lens of fairly simple but rigorous tools. And um, yeah, I said this is something I'm interested in. I like this line of reasoning. Economics and finance are sometimes seen as applied mathematics, and they're not. They're actually a branch of philosophy. So, well, so who, how do you know, I mean, you've, you've taught a lot of undergraduates. What, what are the qualities mm. that are needed to be a good economics student, do you think? I mean, you say it's Curiosity. a branch of philosophy. Curiosity. And what else? You, you need a, a, an affinity with numbers. You need, a, you need to be comfortable thinking about data. And most data come in the form of numbers. So you need to be comfortable dealing with data. You don't need to be a great mathematician. Mm. You need to be comfortable with data. You need to be able to apply logic to things that might seem illogical. You, may, you need to be able to apply models to different areas. So if you're, I think, say, for example, if you're doing chemistry or applied mathematics, these are great mental toolkits because you're taking standard models and then being presented with sometimes quite messy data and asked to make sense of them through these lenses. It's a way of thinking. Curiosity about the world, curiosity about the economy, willingness to get dirty with data, and an intellectual curiosity about, you know, can we think about this through this lens? Bearing in mind always that economics is one way of viewing the world. It's not the only way, and it's not necessarily the correct way. Intellectual flexibility, curiosity, a, a mind that likes taking models and applying them in different situations. Brian, it's, it's, as you said earlier on, it's, it, today an election has been called here in Ireland. Mm. Um, so I'm going to ask you an impossible question to, to finish off. Oh, God. That, well, it, it always seems like in society there are two forces crashing against one another. One is pol politics and one is economics. Yeah. Uh, I can never work out which is the rock and which is the wave. What do you think? I was going to say which is the hard place. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you think is the stronger force that politics, at the end of the day? Because politics, politics is about culture and culture is strategy. Um, politics is the expression of some form of popular will. And in, in Ireland, we have a very, uh, you know, very flat, democratic, uh, all-inclusive, you know, approach. Other countries have different approaches. But, you know, that's not to say that they don't have politics in Iran or in China. They do, and just as vicious as we have, but constructed in different ways. And those are outworkings of a social structure. Economics is the, the, the maidservant to politics. Economics is the art of saying, you know, what's possible. And politics is the art of pragmatism. And sometimes what economics is saying runs athwart what is the political correct thing to do. And, and that's where the rock and the hard place, that's where the rock and the wave come in. At the end of the day, economics is about advice. 
and you know, I worked in the civil service, and you know, civil servants propose, the minister disposes, and that's ultimately the way it should be in a democratic society. All we as economists, all we as people who have an economic way of thinking, can do and should do is, when we're speaking in our professional voice, say, look, these are the trade-offs. These are the issues. If you do this, this is likely to happen. If you go there, that's likely to be the outcome. And uh, if people, you know, if the people have decided otherwise, that's fine. Abraham Lincoln, who was, uh, you know, not only a, a wonderful pol politician, but also a good homespun philosopher, said, you know, the people have the right to turn their back backsides to the fire, but then they will have to learn to sit upon the blisters. And that's what we as economists should be saying. You know, that's a fire. Sit too close, you're going to get burnt. If people say, fine, that's okay, we'll deal with it. Okay, we've, we've done our bit. Well, with that homely metaphor, I think we'll, we'll end. Professor Brian Lucy, thank you very much indeed. Thanks.